Hi, people from the internet. Welcome back to our podcast in Mindsight. Wonderful to have you back. Um, this week's episode, we'll talk about um, a fancy book of self-development genre, um, 12 Rules for Life for, from Jordan Peterson. But before that, let's get into how your week has been, Yasin. Yeah, um, my week... Actually, this week has been, apart from being pretty normal, <laughs> as always, uh, I actually met with <laughs> an solid. old friend from high school, uh, who you, I'm sure you know. And Initials. <laughs> PK. <laughs> PK, yes, I know PK. PK. I think I was at PK's yesterday. <laughs> nice. Yeah, and uh, in high school, we used to make a lot of music together, and mm. uh, we even made music in the streets uh, one summer, and yeah, we um, we were just both very invested in kind of all this musical stuff, and uh, we met again um, this week and just, you know, made a lot of music for like four hours, <laughs> and, which got me Quite pretty nostalgic and... Yeah, pretty happy. It was just a, a really nice experience. And uh, I I realized that I really missed that, you know, making music together with someone. Mm -hmm. and just, yeah, it, it was great. It was really uh, a great little musical session there. What about <laughs> your week? You know what? That, that's so funny because like yesterday I met up with PK as well. to <laughs> 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 we do exactly that to make some music to... Talk about the old times, talk about what we're doing right now. He's also studying physics. <laughs> and yeah. I think I haven't seen him for over half a year or so and was was quite a nice experience. <laughs> That's quite a nice quite a nice thing here. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm getting also more into the doing music together stuff and I noticed that I should probably train myself to improvise a little more know my chords know my scales <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure because it was really i don't know <laughs> i was so flashed by his skills there <laughs> <laughs> because i mean you you played for like 10 years or so so yeah 13 more, or something yeah <laughs> no wonder there that you are quite good in that sure. but i think he only played for two years or stuff and yeah <laughs> especially because yeah. now like i i've been playing for um three quarters of a year now and seeing where you can get if you really apply yourself that's kind of motivating there yeah <laughs> definitely and you know now that i'm a little bit older let's say a little bit wiser maybe when it comes to playing the piano at least <laughs> uh i really i really start to understand what my t piano teacher is always talking about like you have to know your scales and your chords mm. and all that and i kind of refused to for a long time because i was oh man it's so theoretical and i don't need that shit for me <laughs> i just want to play but mm. you know you'll come to the realization pretty fast that you really need that especially if you you know if you play together with someone, if you accompany them, no, and not all even that. for that. I noticed, like in learning pieces uh, of classical music, for example, PK was doing so much better because he knew, like his um, chords there, could just read them off and knew which key, like a uh, piece was in or key signature, and that makes the learning process even so much easier. Or just playing from the sheet. <laughs> and sure. for me, I sit. I'm sitting there like 
trying to learn it by heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's okay. You know, it's it's just a lot of years and hours and hours, and you just start to kind of at first glance to be able to say, okay, that's uh, this chord in that key, and mm. uh, those are the fingers I I need to use and all that. <laughs> yeah, it's just after some time it just becomes automatic you don't even think mm. about it and people ask you how do you see that it's that chord i mean it's obvious like <laughs> isn't it <laughs> it's just and like reading but i guess it's exactly, still a while exactly. to get there for me of course all right I so started. i guess Sorry. now with all the nerd talk um <laughs> i i also i also started like blogging again because during the semester it was quite stressful and I know that those are excuses and stuff for not continuing blogging, but yeah, now I started doing that again. Like recently posted something about another book I read, Thinking Grow Rich. And I want to get into that more also with Instagram uh, involvement and stuff. And yeah, you can also find like um, our podcast page on my blog now, like a small section where you oh, can also nice. play that if you don't have Spotify or some of the other <laughs> 3000 services we signed up for <laughs> yeah <laughs> well i guess it's not even useful for you because you are already listening now <laughs> and we should be addressing sure. that to the other people but yes <laughs> and other than that preparing for my philosophy exams on monday there will be the first one kind of excited oh there are there are multiple ones so not yeah, just, yeah i, I not like just have one. two uh, lectures there i'm visiting Social ah, okay. philosophy and philosophical anthropology, if you can translate it like that. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> and like in cool. those oral exams only, which is quite nice, I guess. But yeah, yeah, cool. Still exams, preparing and stuff. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very advisable. All right. So I suggest we get into um, our topic of this week. I already teased it at the beginning of the episode. We want to talk about. Yeah. 12 rules from life from jordan b peterson um i'd suggest you tell our listeners uh why we want to get into that or like what was our idea there yeah so in the beginning when we sort of came with the idea to really start the podcast and all that and we started to sort of collect some episode ideas some topics you know we could talk about and you know, we realized even though there are a lot of topics we could talk about and a lot of stuff that interests us, um, it would be a pretty good idea to just um, take good books we've read or books that really resonated with us and just talk about certain ideas or concepts and, you know, just discuss them. And um, yeah, we came we came to the, to the decision to just start with 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Pearson, which was like one of the first self-help or self-improvement books that i read i think it was the second one <laughs> yeah and we just decided to start with that because there are a lot of ideas that are you know um that ha that are good for discussion <laughs> let's put it that for discussion way. definitely i think overall his advice is also quite solid you can make a lot out of it i guess if you sure. apply it in the right way so Exactly. But I think before, you know, we get into the topic for today, maybe we should just uh, quickly for the people who are listening and don't know who Jordan Pearson is, um, just a quick overview over his persona. He's a clinical psychologist and a, a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. 
and you know he sort of became quote unquote famous uh, because of his opinions concerning Bill C-16, which was a bill concerning gender identity and expression in Canada. Mm. And let's put it that way, he wasn't really in favor of <laughs> <Yes>. the contents <laughs> of uh, this bill. And ever since, he's been in a lot of political debates and some people would cons uh, consider him to be more right-leaning, conservative, although he doesn't consider himself to be part of any specific I, political direction. Which which I find already critical. I mean, if you're a person of public interest and are proclaiming, for example, like you are not in favor of uh, gender identity and expression, or like at least some of the aspects there, then I guess I I think you can't even say of yourself that are, you are not taking a political position. No, but he doesn't. He doesn't say that. He just doesn't say that he but doesn't consider right. himself to be part of either right or the left. He considers okay. himself to be part so, of. So, okay. He considers Center. himself <laughs> to be more part of you know just an independent thinker and uh, some ideas concepts he has could be considered more right leaning, some more left leaning. So yeah, he doesn't really okay. he doesn't really put himself into a certain political direction. Well, yeah, okay, okay, I understand what you want to say, but nevertheless, I I think it's not up to you to decide <laughs> like which kind of uh, box you get put into. Or you I mean you can say that you're not racist and nevertheless be perceived as racist. For sure, example, but it's, which not yeah, not sure, concerning not it, uh, Jordan Peterson now, but that, that just as an example. <laughs> sure, but if if people consider you to be uh, racist, although you aren't racist, then it's not exactly sure. your fault, and it's just a misconception of people. But we get yeah <laughs> we yeah get we, we get off that. track right now again. Um, but yeah, ju so, just something I noticed. <laughs> um, and you know this whole drama around Bill C sixteen was also kind of how I learned about Jordan Peterson and how I first started to kind of get in contact with his uh, videos on YouTube and all that. And the book we, were, we will be talking about, uh, 12 Rules for Life, was published in 2018. And, you know, it's a self-help, self-improvement book. And as the title suggests, he kind of um, has broken down this book into 12 chapters or 12 rules for life, basically. And in the course of each chapter, he kind of illustrates and further explains those rules uh, with the help of either personal anecdotes um, or anecdotes from his life as a clinical psychologist, um, some philosophical and religious ideas, concepts from biology, and of course, psychology. So there are just a lot of different sort of influences and areas he touches upon um, to make his points. So, yeah, we... Yeah, we, quite a nice summary. <laughs> yeah, that's why we decided to kind of take some points, some concepts yeah. from, from those rules, discuss them in, in this episode, and we hope you, you enjoy it. Yeah, just like a, as a little addition from my side, um, his, his book isn't like involving that much of his political ideology, let's say. So you can take that kind of more or less separate from what he says politically. And in general, what you should also like know, he's like more on the critical side of like our modern or of the modern liberal culture ideology, let's say. Because he, he's like more in favor of what 
uh, of these age-old like verities what has been proven to work over the past uh, 2000 years and stuff and so he's not let's say that open for change or at least in his opinion there must be like really valid reasons for change so often in his book like he also tends to <laughs> quote the bible for example or works with biology and evolution and you'll also notice that in the first chapter keyword lobsters <laughs> yes Alrighty. for sure yeah if you want we can dive right into it definitely so um we talked about the rules now we decide to start with rule one which is stand up straight with your shoulders back and you know of course when you hear that or at least when i heard it or read it for the first time i was like okay uh what does he mean exactly is this about having good posture or <laughs> is it just some sort of uh, crazy philosophical metaphor and you know a little spoiler well, I guess here it's, it's, it's both, both. <laughs> yes <laughs> yes nice. and to kind of just quickly summarize what is going on in this chapter he basically says that your physical appearance your your posture basically affects your mental state affects how others perceive you and kind of what what status you have in society and he kind of discusses this so uh, this idea of social status from a um, biological point of view but also uses as we said religious ideas philosophical ideas um and he considers that good posture or, you know, opening yourself up to the world, um, of course, <laughs> <laughs> meant, meant in a way that you kind of go confidently through the world and just don't like hump down and try to hide yourself um, is part of kind of the psychophysiological loop and enables you to be perceived as more confident, as more confident, uh, as more competent <laughs> <laughs> and... Yes, that's basically the, the gist of, of this chapter. Yeah, quite a nice summary. So wh what do you think? Is that like good advice applicable to your life, for example? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, if you take it like really pragmatic, it's just about, you know, um, sort of portraying yourself externally in a way um, so that others perceive you as being as i said confident and competent and it certainly mm. is part of kind of ha having success in in the social hierarchy as he calls it and yeah i've noticed it many times and not only in my life just perceiving others and seeing other people if someone's kind of hunched down and you can <laughs> tell he's kind of hiding and doesn't want to engage yeah. with anyone uh, you don't necessarily see him as someone who's confident or competent although he may be but uh, ex he doesn't really externalize it mm. uh, whereas when there's someone who 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 seems very confident who just kind of stands up straight with the shoulders <laughs> back and um kind of is open to the world and kind of at the same time shows a certain degree of vulnerability but seems to be perfectly fine with kind of showing that publicly and mm -hmm. externally that's someone who is usually perceived as being very confident and competent although that might not be the case so um i think it's it's very interesting especially even when we think about first impressions um oh, definitely when you know <laughs> nothing about typical someone. interview situation <laughs> exactly 
Exactly. And it just helps a lot also. And we're going to get into that where he argues that, you know, good posture and all that isn't only to kind of signalize to other people that you're confident and competent. It actually um, releases serotonin and helps you feel like you're more confident and competent than mm-hmm. you might actually be. Um, but yeah, we're going to get so, into that. So <laughs> what, what I, I don't know, I... I I, I see it as quite critical at some points as ideology. Of course. Um, okay, wait. In, why interview- do you call it ideology? Because okay. you, you yeah, that, that maybe was the wrong word. Like, b- what about um, belief? Or is that also too strong? No, it's not <laughs> too, too strong. But I think ideology. Ideology has like a negative connotation. Really, I, I yeah, think. it doesn't yeah. really fit here. That's, Okay, okay. Then his advice, let's say. <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. Yeah, good for pointing that out. Um I, I I think it's kind of portraying that fake it till you make it aspect. Uh, it it's I don't know, I think it, it, it doesn't really solve the underlying problems. I mean, if you're not self confident and not believing in your values and what you're saying, then of course, for the external experience, you you get like a lot by just portraying to be confident, by just saying what you want to say with uh, force behind it, with um, definite purpose. But on the other hand, I think it is just an external thing and it doesn't really solve your internal problems you might have like... You, you know, if you, for example, don't really believe what you're saying, then maybe you're not informed enough about the subject for example and therefore you're not able or like (laughs) internally you feel like resistance to proclaiming it with uh, like confidence and that usually seems to be like a big issue (laughs) for me with like politicians for example (laughs) oh okay so such like um faking confidence and belief into your uh, values for example whereas you have under underlying problems like a lack of um, information or um, yeah yeah other problems like uh, oof what did I write down <laughs> like uh, you you value others' opinions too much because like that's a really external um, approach to to life like faking or like trying to not even faking maybe you are really confident but just putting that much value on your external experience gives like other people a lot of force about you and you probably will like value what other people think of you more than you should maybe even but that's that's like just the one part of the thing because the other part was like the serotonin stuff he mentioned which gives you like internal no but i get your point so you're basically (laughs) yeah so you're basically criticizing that it may, this may be used, let's say, in a negative way to kind of create an illusion of you, who you are externally to show other people, although or maybe, you may yeah, not yeah, be that Yeah, maybe, maybe even give you the illusion that you really improved your life, but basically your underlying internal values haven't changed, which are, in my opinion, often like the biggest problems if something in your life is, doesn't, is, is not working out. Okay. Now I see your point, but I don't really understand how that is exactly criticizing the rule. 
I feel like that's more no, criticizing it's, it's just, people. No, it's just like it's maybe putting too much focus on your external appearance. And I'm just wanting, uh, I just want to like um, give like that crit critical reflection point there that, okay, yes, that is a, in of often cases, it's a valid rule, but don't, don't think that you're done with it if you apply it. Ah, sure. Don't, don't think no, about sure. <laughs> solving all your life's problems just by standing with your back <laughs> straight, maybe. <laughs> no, sure. But, uh, you know, of course, the this is highly biased now but you know having listened to a lot of uh, Peterson's lectures and all that he he certainly is a person who who puts emphasis on people to to focus on the underlying values and to focus on the real problems okay. and not trying to portray an illusion and I also think in this in this chapter he he focuses way more on kind of the biological aspect mm -hmm. and how uh, changing certain things about your, let's say, physiological structure can really improve your overall, overall confidence and maybe even competence, who knows. Because you know, I, I've actually seen an interesting interview with John Pearson where he kind of defines competence as being um, the sort of, how did he put it, the acceptance of vulner uh, vulnerability. And, you know, by standing up straight with your shoulders thing. back and all that to sort of, you know, as you, as we say, you open your chest and all that and kind of be open to the world. You're kind of exposing yourself at the same time and you're at the same time showing the world, hey, I'm vulnerable, but I know that everything you guys throw at me, I can deal with it and I can work it out. So that's an interesting way to kind of think about competence because when we hear competence, we think, oh, mm -hmm. you have to have a lot of degrees, you have to have a very good education or, you know, all that stuff. And that's, you of course, be a, like a very important... And fallible and... Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay, it's, okay. of course, yeah. an important part of it, but kind of to think about it as I accept my vulnerability and I accept that I'm not perfect and I'm willing to show that publicly and not pretend I'm I'm perfectly you know I'm, I'm the perfect human being I think that's really where competence and ultimately confidence comes from all right yeah I guess if you put it that way then yeah if you combine it with, like with my criticism there then that's a very solid approach to the rule I think because like yeah, as, as I said, my criticism was like focused on the negative aspect of maybe faking it too much. <laughs> yeah. Of maybe faking that you are right, just portraying confidence in your beliefs, which maybe are not as solid as you think. But if you take it like with that competence approach, with that acceptance of vulnerability, then quite a solid principle in that sense. Okay. Sure. Yeah, I uh, want to like move on to the bio biological like viewpoint there. Maybe. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, let's talk about the lobsters. <laughs> <laughs> he became um, quite known as the lobster guy because of yes, that chapter. <laughs> yes, there are a ton of memes and all that. I think he, he also started to actually make merch out of it. <laughs> or, or his daughter, oh, I don't know. Capitalism actually, making yeah. <laughs> money out of lobster shit. It's actually actually quite funny, but yeah, let's let's talk about the lobsters. So um, the way he argues in this chapter is, as as I said, mainly biological, 
but not necessarily he doesn't necessarily base uh, his arguments on um exactly the human brain he mm. actually argues from uh, the perspective or not the perspective but he he uses the brain of lobsters as an example to kind of illustrate some of his points and kind of the way he argues is that lobsters have a pretty simple nervous system um with you know pretty large let's say easily observable neurons and mm-hmm. therefore it's pretty let's say relatively easy to to kind of make experiments on them and and understand more about how the brain works and you know of course it's not 100% just transferable to human beings uh, but i think it offers a a pretty in- interesting simplified explanation for the processes um, that are going on in the brain and how they are related to our physiology. Yeah, what what does he actually state then? Yeah, he with he lobsters. says that <laughs> he says this <laughs> with lobsters. Um, he <laughs> says that you know when lobsters uh, get in a fight to kind of kind of figure out who is more dominant in in I don't know in this air, particular area of the sea. Um, <laughs> when they start to fight, they they kind of try to portray again confidence and portray dominance by stretching out by making themselves bigger um by even i think they even have a certain uh, certain scent uh, that that they use to kind of exert dominance and once a lobster in a fight is loses a fight basically he says that the lobster kind of uh, shrinks down and uh, hides himself and kind <laughs> of uh, puts himself in a subordinate position compared to the lobster who won, who is now kind of the most dominant lobster in the whole area. And he says, actually, um, it's been you know pretty much proven, or at least there are many studies done on that, that lobsters who have won a fight are way more likely to win the next fight with another lobster than... You know, and a lobster who lost the fight is way more likely to lose the next fight because he's, let's just put it very simply, he's not confident enough uh, <laughs> that he will win the next fight because he lost oh, uh, the previous one. <laughs> and, you know, of course, it's a very sort of pragmatic, sim- simplistic way okay. to think about it. And he's um, like transferring that to human behavior then, I, I guess. Like you... The, the thing with a confidence and a competence you like have to like stand up straight to <laughs> feel the confidence of the winning lobster yeah yep he argues that or he says that there's actually serotonin uh, released in the brain of lobsters as well as in humans mm-hmm. and and that's just, it's more or less the same or a very similar um very similar structure and a very similar process and therefore he says, you know, and I think you can really feel it. It's not something that's so far-fetched. Yeah. That once you you kind of force yourself to stand up straight and to, to you know, uh, put your chest out and all that, you actually feel more confident and you kind of can feel this rush of serotonin. And, you know, even uh, even if, as you said, it, it may be an illusion to some extent and it may be kind of fake it till you make it, you mm. can certainly feel the rush of serotonin. You can certainly <laughs> feel, okay, something is changing about the way I approach people, about the way I maybe even approach life. So yeah, that's the sort of his argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've also like got a 
short kind of or a quote from his book even if you want me and to to like read it out to get like a sure. better idea of how he's writing and what he's uh, proclaiming and what yeah arguments he makes um i'll just read it <laughs> right now um to stand up straight with your shoulders back is to accept the terrible responsibility of your life with eyes wide open It means deciding to voluntarily transform the chaos of potential into the realities of habitable order. It means adopting the burden of self-conscious uh, vulnerability and accepting the end of the unconscious paradise of childhood, where finitude and mortality are only dimly comprehended. It means willingly undertaking the sacrifices necessary to generate a productive and meaningful reality. It means acting to please God in the ancient language. So attend carefully to your posture, quit drooping and hunching around, speak your mind, put your desires forward as if you had a right to them, at least the same right as others. Walk tall and gaze forthrightly ahead, dare to be dangerous, encourage the serotonin to flow plentiful through the neural pathways, desperate for its calming influence. <laughs> so, like, I Very think that nice. was from the end of the book, like, summary, kind of what he was trying to yeah. tell us there. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting how, as I said, he touches upon this idea that competence is this acceptance of vulnerability as he said it means deciding to volu voluntary trend ah no sorry that's the wrong part <laughs> it means adopting the burden of self-conscious vulnerability kind of accept mm -hmm. i'm vulnerable i'm not perfect i have problems but i choose to speak my mind and i choose to put my desires forward and i choose not to hide from the realities of this life and you know i think that's a pretty pretty good life philosophy to live by at least by my perspective uh -huh. um well i i i f see it also kind of critical there in in the sense of i think one of his chapters is like also called like get your house in order before you like criticize criticize the world the world yeah. um and in the sense of that you put it right now it means like okay accepting that i have like um certain problems with myself <laughs> if you can put it that way um that i'm vulnerable that i'm not perfect and um still going out and um yeah being being a self-confident you i think he should put a bit of more focus on on the the other rule there that you should get your own house in order first <laughs> kind of again um thinking about the the fake it aspect a little more okay so you're okay interesting so you see from the perspective of this rule stand up straight with your shoulders back may create an illusion and may lead to people to not take too seriously their own problems and yes. you know, figuring them out before i think it should sure. always be combined with that reflective with the self-reflective uh, process of questioning your ideas and beliefs and taking um most things as like uh, dynamic and fluid and not as solid beliefs that are unalterable sure but uh, i don't really think there's any part in this chapter where he he concludes that no no I'm, i'm just saying like if you read it like here then that might create the wrong idea again 
I don't know. I think it only creates the wrong idea if you wanted to. <laughs> I think if, I don't know. I think if you go into the chapter kind of expecting, or expecting not open-minded, expecting to, to criticize to criticize it i think you can find plenty mm -hmm. of things where you can say it's not um it's not self-reflective enough although he mentions as you said he wrote an entire chapter about putting your house in order first before you go ahead and try to change the world yeah. um i get it i get your point but um i think that's a perspective that is voluntarily uh, voluntarily kind of yeah criticizing him i yeah I agree to some extent <laughs> because I view Mr. Peterson as, uh, let's say, I, I I see him as an ambivalent figure <laughs> when it comes sure. to some of his statements, and I therefore I I don't want to condemn all his ideas to be, uh, yeah, <laughs> part of his ideology. I just want to like open the eyes for reflective criticism there and maybe not everyone that reads self-help books maybe even the majority that reads self-help books just takes everything that people are saying for granted i mean also when i read through the book the first time um, i didn't know mr peterson before i mean you recommended the book to me um all the principles were kind of really appealing to me and i didn't question them any further like with reflection like are they really as that solid or where, where are like points that are maybe uh, to be seen critical and that's what i'm trying to do like right here just open open up your eyes a little more when you're reading like self-development literature in general because that i'm i made that mistake in the beginning to take everything um, that people were saying also from other books as universal truths and not kind of regarding uh, where they fit into my life <laughs> in the right way. Sure. I, I, I always see like uh, self-help literature in general as secondary improvement in the sense of like small tips and tricks that make your path easier, but that shouldn't like, that's often the feeling that gets conveyed. They um, actually should not um, give you shortcuts through your life or actually don't give you shortcuts through your life. You, you kind of have to determine in that metaphor to determine your path yourself by choosing your values um, uh, or principles in the right way. And <laughs> that's why I'm kind of taking here the more critical position when it comes sure. to his, to his um, yeah, advice. Sure. No, I, I get it. And, you know, as you said, it's, it's important. I agree with that. But, and I'm being provocative now, but yeah. don't you think it's a big part of you kind of trying to find uh, aspects to criticize which of course is not a problem and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm glad you do and i'm i'm glad we can discuss this oh we're but getting here into uh, like really discussions right now sure <laughs> don't you think like that. that you're trying to find those those you know those little pieces of ideas you can mm -hmm. kind of criticize and you think that's nitpicking not only that, of course, I think that it is <laughs> in certain <laughs> aspects, but that's not my point. Don't you think that maybe, because you said before you really knew who Jerome Peterson was, you kind of took, took those ideas for granted and you read it, you enjoyed it, and you didn't think much about it. Don't you think that it may be 
that you disagree with his political views and therefore now you're trying to find aspects in his book or aspects in his convictions that you can criticize um certainly i i really don't i okay maybe that's a bit too much but i i don't really agree with many of his statements especially like uh the the gender and yeah gender expression thing um and point granted i i think i'm focusing a bit too much on his political opinion there but um his political or like his his worldview seems to shine through here also in the book to some extent and i think sure. that's mentioned or noteworthy here but point granted yes <laughs> i mean it's in i think that's the general behavior of people if if you really can't agree with someone you <laughs> you try to find out like um every like like also small aspects you try to pick them out and um yeah. lay them in front of them as <laughs> criticism i think yeah but i, I find that that's interesting. I, I actually think that's even a that approach should be seen as critical and i'm and i notice also that in myself right now and i want to like keep my approach open-minded which i'm also like i'm i'm in general i'm very well agreeing with this point it really helps uh, like with the uh, idea of saying you straight up <laughs> with your shoulders back <laughs> because it's a it's a really um quite a useful principle in social relationships and to like see yourself as worthy of discussion but what he also like well, maybe that's another point for the later discussion maybe we want to <laughs> stay at this point there bring it up a little later then well sure. what what do Just you think yeah i find it interesting because as you said you said that you read the book first you didn't know who mm -hmm. john peterson was you agreed with the stuff and yeah no that's 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 no actually um it's not because i got to know jordan peterson better or only partly because of that it's just because i especially the past few weeks i'm i've been beginning to take all of that self-help literature as more critical because i've been reading I don't know a dozen books since half year, since half a uh, year back uh, of self-help literature and all of the advice, and oftentimes I think the ideas are not tackling the actual problems. They just want to convey the idea of giving shortcuts, which in life, which I don't think is like even possible to have shortcuts in life. It's just like you. May, As I said, like you have your uh, path in your life that's determined by your um, primary values and all of that self-help literature, you can see that as um, equipment like boots or like uh, those hiking sticks, which make it a little easier, but you still have to walk up that mountain. And that the way you take up the mountain is like determined by your primary values, by your primary beliefs, which you should maybe figure out in like a dynamic reflective process over your whole life and that's why i began like seeing the self-help literature as maybe just a part of my inventory that's maybe can help me and that should al always be seen critical in regards to my underlying values because some of that stuff might help me more get that path up uh, get that mountain up and some of that stuff might be hindering 
<laughs> sure. Like, I don't know. <laughs> 10 okay, of course, I, I get the point with the shortcuts. Of course, it depends on, on the kind of books you read and the kind of people who wrote them. Yeah. Um, but do you feel like those now, you know, really, really general, do you feel like generally self-improvement books claim that they can offer you shortcuts? Or do you think they actually say, look, those are techniques or mm -hmm. those are tools in your toolbox you can use that can improve your life, make you more productive, but there's absolutely no shortcut because I that's, rather see it that way. That, that's a very good question. And I think I can generalize it for every book. There, there are different books that take different approaches to life. And in general, I'd even say that Peterson tries to like establish some basic values that you can adopt in your life with his 12 rules. Okay. And that, that are maybe not that much toolbox like, but rather um, that primary belief sort there. So sure. Especially like uh, <laughs> the, the thing I wrote in my blog post about that was also quite critical. Um, Think and Grow Rich, it was like written in the 1930s and that really made it seem like a shortcut to success. <laughs> really? Interesting. Yeah, do go through these lists, do that stuff and that stuff and stick to it and then you'll be guaranteed to get money. <laughs> okay, yeah, I, I didn't really see it that way, but I, I get your point again, but I think... It really depends just what lens you use to read those mm -hmm. books because I see it, okay, those are techniques or maybe, you know, also you have, of course, you see it in a kind of historical context, as you said, the 1930s, the world was quite different back then. Um, <laughs> but, you know, ideas like perseverance, hard work, you know, not being a lazy shit and all that, those are things that I, I think are quite universal and don't really offer a shortcut. I think... Mm -hmm. There are things you absolutely need when you want to achieve success, whatever that yeah. success is to you. Although, you know, again, there are people who say my success is to um, just have a job and watch TV for the rest of the day. Sure, if that's your goal, you may not need as much perseverance as someone who says, I want to become the governor of California. But... Again, I think those are just universal principles and I, I don't really see them as shortcuts or okay. I don't really see the people who write these books as claiming, look, I have I have the magic pill. I have uh, I have a way <laughs> no one has ever found. I think which those is, are just things. Which is funny because like when I, when I first read it, it seemed to me that if I adopt these 12 principles, then I will be... Uh, by quite uh, by a substantial amount more successful than I was before, and that I have to like stick to these principles and adapt them into my life. And I think I was missing out because maybe it was like one. Of, it was actually the second self help book that I read um, after the subtle art of giving not giving a fuck. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think I was not as reflective ab about it, which principle might actually help me to come further or which principle helps me more and which helps me less to get further in life. And that sure. might maybe be a more of a problem with me than with the general public out there. But I guess if 
<laughs> I guess if I'm having that problem, then maybe a lot of other people out there are also maybe struggling with the same thing or haven't thought about the same thing. Because sure, yeah, sure. No, I get it, and I also think you know when you say I'm not just you know I'm not just uh, I'm not blaming you or anything. <laughs> I could, I completely get your point. And no, it's, it's, it's okay. Really, roast me similar. if you think no, no, no. there are <laughs> problems. We want no, your discussions similar. that are uh, yeah helping us to get further in life. Sure. No, Journey. it's very similar yeah. for me, but I I really think that um, you can't. Of course, there are books. There are always books and authors and articles and all that who mm. claim to have the magic pill. And only if you think <laughs> the uh, to gurus. all those, <laughs> yeah, to all those YouTube ads, I've made 1.6 oh, million yeah. in eight yeah, days and all that. Ads. Exactly. You know, of course, there are people who claim to have the shortcuts and who make a ton of money um, scamming people. But I think most of those self-help books, especially, you know, books who are well-established and widely respected, um, which I think Thinking Grow Rich, um, Thinking Fast and Slow, all those books are pretty mm -hmm. established and pretty well-respected. Um, generally, those are books who say, hey, here are some tools, here are some studies, here's how your brain works that you may not have heard before, you may mm -hmm. not even be aware of that. Here's how your brain tricks you, or here's how you know you can change your perspectives on life and all that. I think if people don't take those things with a grain of salt and try to really apply them to their life, to their value system, and try to figure out, okay, how does that actually, how can I actually use that in my life with my definition of success and happiness, with my value system, with my kind of vision for the future, how can I use them? And I think if people don't do that, I think it's more their fault than really the fault of the authors or the fault of the concepts that are yeah. presented. Yeah, because I, you can I agree. take them. You know, you can you can say, I wanna, I wanna, um, I wanna build a house, and there's a book of course metaphorical now <laughs> uh, i want to build a house and let's say the house is kind of your value system and mm. your education and your definition of success and all that this is your house you want to build it and you have a plan for it and you know you find some books and all that with tools that you could use to 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 make that house and to make it as beautiful as possible and all that but if you try to build a house using a don't know a violin bow you may not be that <laughs> successful and if you just take mm. it because oh it said in that book that if i take that bow i will i will be able to build my house sure it may work for someone who wants to build a house out of violin bows but it probably won't <laughs> work for your definition of what a house is and mm. you know it's very abstract and this example might not be the best but i think i kind yeah, of no i think it's think actually about a quite it in that solid way. like metaphor but you should also like pay attention to your foundation because you can't build every house on any foundation. Sure. I think that that's where the value system sort of comes okay. in. To be self-aware and to know, okay, those are my values. This is what's important to me. And yeah, all the good stuff. So yeah, I, I guess to sum it up, like my position might to a certain extent be affected by uh, my view of Mr. Peterson's uh, political opinions. But I also want to give give you that kind of reflective process that 
um, maybe enables you to discern violin bows from hammers <laughs> when it exactly. comes to building your um, value system, your life, you know. So, yeah. yeah. And in general, like, I, I knew that you you are more in favor of his books and his beliefs. And so I wanted to, like, <laughs> also, like, portray the other side of, uh, yeah, maybe what he's claiming. Of course. And, to and like, get important. a critical discussion there. Yeah, definitely that's important. All I right. think in general, in today's society, that's kind of what we lack of. We kind of we we have those extremes and we have those people screaming and talking and trying to kind of mm. force their value system and their beliefs uh down each other's throats uh, but i think what we really need is civil discussions and people who take the critical critical side or just people who have completely different opinions and try to find a middle ground because more often than not what i found in many discussions with people who are radically different uh, when it comes to political beliefs is that more often than not there are a lot more similarities and a lot more points we can completely agree mm. on than there are really points of dispute and those points of disputes are let's say usually very marginal problems not always but generally they're very marginal very uh, problems that are kind of taken to the extremes or examples that are talking about the 0.1% of the population but I think yep. if if we are able to be more civil to to have you know and of course arguments that are backed up by science by facts and not by simply um, <laughs> random emotional states um, <laughs> yes I think we can got we can get far ahead in 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 not only politics just in generally how we how we approach those, mm -hmm. let's say, disputed topics. Yeah. So yeah. that's just my, my seems, two cents. Seems <laughs> rather solid to me. I think it was also like um, President Roosevelt's approach to like <laughs> doing diplomacy, just get down what we agree on, like with, I don't know, Soviet Union or no, did that exist? No, that did not exist yet. Like <laughs> just, just with whatever... Um, person you're arguing get down what you both can agree on and build something from that instead exactly. of disputing about your um yeah about your what you don't agree on which also is like an important point but if you want to build something then yeah figure out the right foundation <laughs> that both of you want to build on sure. <laughs> to put it in that sense yeah yeah all right um do we want to get back to like the um, lobster thing, or what? What did you want to remark right now? Uh, just a just a quick idea because I remembered that in one episode we kind of talked about, or I said that I know that I sometimes come over as someone who likes to kind of talk on the extremes, mm. and we kind of agreed that sometimes or oftentimes in certain discussions it's better to kind of start at the extremes kind of start at the macro perspective yes, yes. of the problem and then get down to kind of the details and the nitty-gritty and i think in political debates it's it's exactly the other way around you have to start in the middle ground and kind of where do we agree what details are kind of in sync i think and i think that's that that depends on the country and the political system 
I mean, in Germany, it's really different from the US. In Germany, we have like this <laughs> consensus-based uh, politics, politics, and in uh, the US, we are, have kind of like this dispute of, let's say, the extremes, Democrats and Republicans, which kind of have to get them to a middle ground. Do, would Would you agree sure. on that, or do you see that differently? Sure, but I think even even then, I think it's it becomes even more important as two political parties or the main political parties become um, the difference between them becomes greater and greater because then if you can find some middle ground that you can start on kind of have this solid foundation of mm -hmm. arguments and beliefs that you are more or less in sync in um, then you can start going into these extremes and figure out okay at what point uh, do we deviate what's mm -hmm. the what's the kind of What are the kind of issues where we just can't seem to to agree on? And yeah, I think especially in a country like like the US, where as you said, we of course have the Democrats, the Republicans, who are pretty much on the, on two extremes. I think <laughs> that's a situation where it's even more important to have the middle ground first established and mm. then start from there and kind of move, you know, not just not just rush through it and try to you know force. Uh, certain beliefs uh, down each other's throats, mm -hmm. but kind of figure out okay, where's the point where we just can't seem to to get together? Yeah, but I I also think that opposition or like in the political sense, the opposition is actually quite valuable because if you own if you like only for, um, have like people that agree on everything, then why are you even discuss discussing? Sure, put but it that way but yes like if you want to yeah in general yeah what you said quite solid cool okay but let's <laughs> get back to to the biology of yes. human behavior yeah, yeah um, like what one one huge point of criticism or like one more or less huge point of criticism i noticed when like going through it is that peterson always seems to be like at the edge of what's scientifically proven in his like when he he's making claims because yeah what's true there have been those studies about lobsters and that they produce more uh, serotonin if they have proven themselves but i i where he's like crossing the boundary of what's maybe scientifically proven is when he tries to transfer that on humans you you said okay maybe that in Like the basic ground of that maybe functions for humans as well, but I think like the human life form especially is like a bit more complex than a lobster <laughs> because we maybe sure. might have like a lot of other more home hormones that are interacting with serotonin, for example. We also have like our nervous system, we have way more neurons and <laughs> I, I don't know how, I don't know that much about the biology of a lobster, but do they even have like brains <laughs> or do they just have those uh, node-like things spread through their spine or do they have, even have a spine? <laughs> yeah, I think it's, I don't it's, think that even have the a crustaceans. I think it's, it's yeah, more yeah. the ladder. But yeah, sure, I, I get your point. Yeah, I, I see. No, I see where true. I see where he's coming from. It's just that often I notice he's he wants. He like uses science to get over the edge a bit to trying to make his arguments with with 
science, which is not that much supporting it anymore. How exactly? Like here in, in, in this example, like, okay, I want to appear as uh, that what, what I'm writing um, should have like the status of scientifically proven. So I take that lobster example and transfer it um, over to humans, which doesn't make it really scientific anymore, but it still appears like um, what I'm trying to say with um, my serotonin point here is, seems like more or less scientific. Okay. Okay, interesting. But then again, you know, many, many experience, uh, many experiments, not experiences, <laughs> many experiments uh, when it comes to kind of understanding more about the brain, about how it works and kind of, you know, human behavior and all that, as we all know, are done with rats, mm -hmm. for example. They're very popular for, for those kind of experiments. Yes, and because you like don't want to cut open humans and stuff. <laughs> exactly i mean yeah yes <laughs> sure but but it's interesting you know why they use rats because rats in their physiology and in their brain structure and in their general biology are like really similar to humans that's why you can use them to test medication and stuff and i i see your point it's it's like uh, still that cross-section where you transfer um the stuff from the rats to humans but I think rats are way closer to humans than <laughs> crustaceans, like lobsters are. And sure. if you like make a vaccine or something, then you of course try it out on rats first to see the negative sides, what diseases they might cause, and then you um, apply that to humans to see sure. the actual no, effects. I, I I totally agree, and you know, of course, of course, I know that that rats are are way more close to human when it com comes to kind of the their nervous system and all that. But I think, or at least Quite as I understood it from from his <laughs> yeah from from his book, is that because in, in the chapter, of course, he doesn't only talk about kind of being confident and showing competence and all that. He also kind of talks about this idea that hierarchies in our social social structure are made up and or at least you know that's what people think people think that um the hierarchies we have we have hierarchies in school we have hierarchies in basically every every areas in every system in our society we have hierarchies and mm -hmm. you know people are richer people are more successful people are kind of just have more social status and all that and he kind of argues that we have a lot of examples in kind of the the animal world, and he takes lobsters as an example because yes. apparently he has some affinity for them. I don't know, um, but he takes them as an example to show: okay, hierarchies could actually be the result of certain biological factors. Okay, and yeah. I think I'm pretty sure that rats don't have a similar behavior when it comes to. Um, you know, injecting serotonin in them, they don't start to mm -hmm. stretch out, and they don't start to um, have certain smell to show that they're more dominant. Because I think, uh, in the kind of the rat world, I th I don't think, or I don't know, maybe you know more. Uh, I don't think that rats have a sort of hierarchical structure. I don't think that ha they have different That's status rats. <laughs> I think they're more of more of um, just. Maybe mass more solitary animals. animals even yeah solitary i think yeah. they're more Robo? i don't 
Well, I, groups. I, <laughs> we certainly have to read up more on reds there. Yeah. I, I also don't know that much about it. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not that much into red not biology, red expert or psychology. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's where where it comes from. And he says, "Look, we have animals who, who when they release serotonin, they kind of move up in the hierarchical structure of their." let's say society or whatever you know system they're in and mm. therefore the ones who have more serotonin and who kind of stretch out and show themselves to be bigger and better more successful and all that are the ones who are on top of that kind of dominance hierarchy and the one who have lost the battles and have kind of hunched down and uh, hide from the more dominant mm. animals those are the ones who are at the bottom and don't really have that much of a chance for success so i think that's where he kind of tries to make the link between uh, lobsters yes. or in general animals who have that sort of hierarchical structure and the structures we have in today's society okay so like you you're saying that it's more of a good analogy to describe what's going on in society there which is still like out of um, the biological kingdom let's say of, of animals yeah. that are more or less similar to us okay yeah I, yes, okay, if you see it like that, then, all right, then my criticism is maybe not justified. But I I see it more as a device that he's using to get his ideas across there. Because with the lobsters, he's not only talking about confidence, he's like also talking about dominance in like hierarchical structures and that you want do to exert dominance and like what he calls um, male order. <laughs> because yeah. he's like talking from order being male and chaos being female, which I don't know, that already sends me like, that. that's tingling my spider senses. <laughs> saying me, okay, he's leaving like science a lot right now. But um, I think he's like, he wants to use that, serotonin thing to get across that dominance and those what um like public um discussions may uh what public discussions declare as male values um he's using it to kind of reinforce the importance of dominance and in my opinion this dominance part is actually the wrong approach to social relations or this hierarchical structure that gets established because of serotonin and stuff um because uh, as a very basic example think about work relationships do you like to work together with like your pushy boss that's that is uh, who is exerting dominance a lot and who's um focusing on his beliefs more than he's trying to engage you into discussions and hear about your opinions um i think that might even be the wrong approach to um yeah good social life there what, what would you say yeah i i don't think he argues from that perspective that in order f for you to be let's say dominant you have to be pushy or you have to be bossy mm -hmm. and all that i think really the arguments he makes in this chapter is only that people who say that 
oh the patriarchy and all that it's a societal as a social structure and we made it up and all that i think mm -hmm. he argues that actually it may be the result from certain biological factors such as the ones who who let's quote unquote win the battles of society and move right. up are more likely to win the next battles than the ones who have already lost multiple times um, and he links that to serotonin effect and to, to the idea that if you are able to externalize confidence and competence in a society that favors those traits and kind of moves you up the dominance hierarchy mm -hmm. as you win more battles and as you become more and more confident and competent, uh, then of course you're going to find yourself in a position of power or of influence or of success, whatever that may be, um, more quickly okay. than the one who who doesn't have those traits. So, so I, I get your it, point. He sees it as, uh, okay, he sees it connected to like the social hierarchy that's established in like our system right now, that if you are dominant and if you're confident, then you have good chances of moving up. Yes. Then, but I think I agree on, then I agree on that. Okay. I think dominance in that case isn't, you know, as you said, being pushy or bossy mm -hmm. and kind of ordering other people around. I think uh, dominance, I would define dominance as more of the more confident and competent you are and the more you are able to externalize those traits the more dominant you are in okay. whatever social context you are in i don't think dominance as in i'm i'm the boss and i'm i'm gonna tell everyone what to do and everyone has to report to me and all that i think that's a very old school um, way of thinking about it yeah yeah that's what what you're saying i completely agree but i think if you read through the chapter, it almost seems like Peterson is not taking that approach. Because if you look uh, look back to the quote I read out, he said like, um, where, wait, where was it? Um, here, put your desires forward as if you had a right to them, at least the same right as others. And what he's kind of expressing there with at least the same right as others is that he's actually thinking that you as an individual have more right than others to no i don't think so i i understand why would he write at least then why would he not write with the same right as others well i think i think that's that's the part where kind of as you said this confident and competence comes in and where maybe at the beginning it's still a sort of illusion because mm. if if you're at the beginning not able to externalize those traits to you know the rest of society um then you may come you may become forward as someone who thinks he has more of a right to a certain position or whatever than someone else i think when he says put your desires forward it's more like speak your truth and um be authentic and say okay. who you are in public and don't which try is, to kind of good values. yes yeah and don't kind of don't try to minimize yourself and the things you believe in and pretend i think that's more of a mental model to pretend you have a right to them or at mm -hmm. least the same as every other person but because i think we tend to you know out of insecurity and out of imposter syndrome and all that <laughs> to believe that our opinion somehow matters less or is less valuable than the opinions of others because we think oh other people are more intelligent and more successful and all that but i think he says you know at least pretend you have the same right as every other person or even you know just put yourself on the same pedestal as everyone else and don't don't try to subsidize your own being as you would say probably <laughs> okay okay yes that 
I, I find that an agreeable position, if you put it that way. Um, especially the point of dominance not being that pushy, or not um, conveying that um, pushy kind of <laughs> connotation that has it, if you say it. Because like dominance always seems like, okay, I'm putting my will onto you, <laughs> and yeah. if, whether you agree or whether you not agree. And it's, that's like a concept I also came about in a book I'm reading right now, which <laughs> after critical reflection, I deemed as a very valuable principle. It's the concept of proactivity rather than like a reaction to your environment. Because yep. like what, what I also what I observed in myself is that oftentimes I'm like... <laughs> Uh, for example, criticizing my professor's way of teaching. Oh, how shitty is that? <laughs> Couldn't you put it in a more, uh, yeah, easier to understand way? And I also, also, what I observe it even more is like in public or when talking to other people, they are constantly complaining about their work relationships and what's not working out. And instead of, or, or what they actually are doing, they are just reactive to their environment they are just um passively enduring what other people maybe put onto them and this concept of proactivity that i stumbled upon there is um like trying to overcome those problems not even by being pushy but just by maybe talking to your professor about the problem you're having or searching another way of uh learning other social information just by pre being proactive to your environment and actually like uh, finding solutions for the problems you have instead of complaining about them yeah for mm. sure yeah I, i completely agree with that and i've also noticed that in myself um especially when it comes as you know or as the people i think know i'm i'm half romanian mm. and in Romania, the political situation is, I, can, I think, can be summarized with one word, which is corruption. And, you know, I, I've noticed that trait in, in many fellow Romanians, let's mm -hmm. say, that, you know, we like to, to, as you said, to complain about it. And, oh, I hope someone comes and changes the system. And I'm so sick of this whole corruption thing. And the, the, politician, the politicians, you know, Uh, putting millions into their own pockets and not doing anything for the for the country and all that but i've come to a point where i'm just so sick and tired of <laughs> as you said being being reactive instead of proactive and really just trying to find a way even if it's you know even if it may seem like nothing much but it's at least i'm doing something and i'm mm. trying to 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 improve and to change the situation there so yeah, I, I completely agree. And maybe back to the point where you said, um, said yeah about dominance. I think, or at least in my limited experience as an 18 year old, <laughs> I've, I've noticed that people who are truly dominant or people who are truly, people who have money or people who have influence, you know, people who are truly successful, don't feel the need to be pushy, don't feel the need to be bossy and all that. Because, you know, 
there's a certain again confidence that comes with it and mm -hmm. you go into a room and you know you are the most i don't know most competent person out of that room even if it is <laughs> quite a bit arrogant but i've noticed it's just people who have those traits and who don't need to to create an illusion for the mm -hmm. rest of society they never feel the they never feel the need to to push other people to be bossy or to even to even put other other people down so they can see me like they're smarter or they are you know more competent or whatever so i think if you've reached um if you've reached kind of the step of being dominant confident competent you know whatever you define as being all that stuff i don't think you really feel the need to to okay. to be that I, I think that's a good ideal you were portraying there. But if you look in, at the actual like social and political field, then it's not necessarily always that way. Um, sure. In small, like in smaller um, companies, for example, there's usually like the person who founded it who's still on top. And as the company grows, that person doesn't want to let go of his uh, responsibilities and powers to like subordinates maybe uh, not is not willing to implement like a uh, second layer between his uh, ground employees and himself like a management layer he wants to keep all this power by himself and i observe that in many like companies or like with many people i <laughs> have contact with which are constantly complaining about stuff like that and if you also look in the grand scheme of things, in the political society, for example, in um, autocracies or like in political systems like Russia, um, if people really like were confident and only and, and not like dominant in the sense of uh, being pushy, then Putin would like allow for Navalny to be <laughs> his opposition there <laughs> and not like uh, let's put him into prison let's uh, beat up those protesters that's sure. what you have been portraying that might be true for a lot of companies and people and successful people out there um, but it's definitely not at all the case uh, in general sure yeah I, I agree and I think people who do feel the need to be that pushy and all that usually other people who are very insecure deep down and as you said haven't haven't really managed their their value system and haven't cleaned up the room before they went out into the world <laughs> i think it 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 mainly comes from from insecurity of knowing i am creating an illusion and the the competence or the dominance I'm I'm portraying in society is actually an illusion, and I know it. And I think that's where the sort of insecurity comes from. But I mm. completely agree that's that's definitely not the case for for uh, all companies or all people. Um, it may not even be a vast majority. Probably it's it's more of a 60-40 uh, kind of sixty forty. Um, how do we put this? Gosh. Um, ratio you know what i mean ratio that's the word thank you um <laughs> would you agree that it's probably more like a 60 40 ratio rather than a 90 10 that depend I, I think that hugely depends on where you like draw the borders but maybe yes 
like just reg not that's not like real scientific studies here but that's just sure. judged by judged by my feelings but yes 40 60 50 50 might be quite good and i i observed that like um or like that's limited on germany i observed that there are many things are moving because of the startup scene where people are quite open about uh, working together about uh, hierarchy and dominance and all that stuff just keeping a nice working environment I, i i at least judging by my gut feeling it seems to be changing in a positive yeah. direction yeah definitely i see that a lot with startups um where they say you know we don't have the strict hierarchy and you can come to the office and uh, you know wearing yeah. whatever you open like door and policies and exactly yes. open door policies and we have an office dog and all that stuff <laughs> you know oh it's, i really want to find a startup now or <laughs> 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 work at one <laughs> yeah so yeah it's definitely moving into a more positive more enforcing direction for sure all right yeah, yeah. all right um maybe let's return to the book for one last <coughs> point of discussion <laughs> that well i found out <laughs> let's say um he seems to be putting quite a lot of value on serotonin <laughs> and <laughs> we've also <laughs> using it been using it quite a lot in our discussion right now um yeah. maybe i i i don't know he's kind of using serotonin as an advice again to bring over his ideas which we discussed right now but the general approach to using serotonin is maybe not even the best because um you have to compare like wh what is the gain of standing up with your shoulders back in serotonin i think it's quite minuscule and if he like actually argued for serotonin being a helpful agent then he wouldn't do it in the sort of stand up with your shoulders back he would be doing like with actual sources of serotonin like exercise and healthy diet and meditation and exposure to sunlight and not with to like enforce his arguments there so that's that's again mm -hmm. like okay point, point granted you're <laughs> hunched back maybe reduce your serotonin levels by a minuscule amount but Why why do you use it to get over your ideas in that non that not that much scientific <laughs> way, let's say? Okay, two points. Um you keep referring to kind of his his argumental structure at being mm. not too scientific or at or least crossing. I, I think it's not of. that I, that's independent from um, of um <clears throat> how valid his ideas are i think we kind of established where they fit in where we should see them critically right now i just think his argumental structure often is not that solid let's say how how exactly because it's very very vague i i, I mean what i just described <laughs> like in yeah sure but But you said, okay, you don't think that serotonin or, you know, improving your posture and all that has that much of an effect on your serotonin level. Yeah, and I, think, I think even just just standing up straight doesn't have that much 
not that yeah not that much effect in improving your quality of life let's say if you if sure. it actually was about um curing your anxiety and your depressions and stuff um then he'd suggest like actual real solid and long enduring sources of serotonin like healthy diet like doing sports and going outside and not trying to yeah raise his lobs raise his lobster point there <laughs> <laughs> no i uh, sure i get your point but um i i don't quite remember if he didn't talk about that in, in the chapter but i i do remember an interviewer uh, i actually watched recently where he he talked about exactly that and he said that you should exercise and you should do, do all that stuff to okay. to kind of have a even better effect um when it comes to your serotonin levels and all that um but yeah i, I can I, I can kind of see your point but if mm. you're reducing his arguments to okay if you have a better posture you have more serotonin and therefore you will move up the dominance hierarchy in society i think it's a bit far-fetched <laughs> to put it that way Sure, but that's kind of how you argue and how f you are kind of reducing his arguments. But he says, okay, good posture and all that is important, but he talks about being vulnerable, being confident, speaking your truth forward, um, speaking your desires forward, kind of being authentic and all that. And I think but if I, you combine all of those... Like he's basing his arguments on lobsters and <laughs> how they fight and the Bible and religion and he's building up from that foundation. And I don't... I don't really feel like that's a valid way of portraying your ideas, however right they might be. Interesting. So what, okay, what would you suggest then should he have done differently in this chapter? He should have not started with lobsters. He should have um, taken maybe studies in human with humans about their serotonin levels and leave out religious beliefs maybe. Be I mean, I'm not against religion here. I just want to say that that they might not have the most objective truths here of course like those subjective things are also part of your life so i, I would have said he sh should have started out with um if he wants to base it on serotonin even then he should have started out uh, with those human studies sure but i think it wouldn't be wouldn't have been possible in his case to start with human studies because his argument also includes that the hierarchies we have in society are are not solely or even not only based on on sort of social constructs but are somewhat even yeah but then again he brings there in, in biology like, he brings in lobsters to describe our social hierarchies he sh he could have like i mean he, this man has a lot of knowledge that i don't deny that he's a lot of knowledge in psychology and philosophy and um social sciences why doesn't he take like the more philosophical approach to discussing societal structures there why does he take lobsters <laughs> no but he does no i think it's in okay I, I don't really agree because he takes he starts with science then he goes on to philosophy and uh, and religion and all that and he comes back to to science and i think if he would have and again it's it's not a book of it's not a it's not a study his book is not a okay. study. It's not a scientific Okay, paper. I agree. That's like, okay, okay. It is part of a self-help book to be kind of l less based on science. All right. Yeah. 
No, and I get that. And I get your point that you say, oh, and many people say that, why does he always have to bring up the Bible and bring up religion and all that? And I, I get it. It's, and it's again, actually, um, just to insert a point, it's like I mentioned at the beginning that he's quite focused on old principles that seem to have worked out over the centuries. And that's why he like wants to bring in the Bible, I guess, to make it more appealing yeah. or to make it more hands-on. I don't know because um, the article you you got that from. I'm not sure if they necessarily refer to that because I remember reading that and I think you got it from the Guardian, right? No, this, I don't. Or think was so. it? Well, <laughs> oh yeah, I got like no, a really I, critical <laughs> Guardian article here too, but that's yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, <laughs> not that. It wasn't the article. It was. It was from someone. Hmm. Oh man. What was it? Wait, let me just quickly, <laughs> because I'm, I don't. Okay, no, we can, we won't discuss this now. Yeah. I, I will check it later. Um, but sure, no, I I get your point and uh, kind of the that you're criticizing that he may seem like someone who is very much based in tradition and who's trying to kind of force or you know enable society to live more like more after the rules that have proven themselves to work out and mm. i which is not negative I, in itself that's not yeah, what i'm exactly saying. <laughs> but um even bring up religion all that i i get why people are critical towards it but i don't see a problem because he uses those stories as a more of metaphorical this, he, inter he interprets them very metaphorically to make and it more accessible he, maybe you know yeah not as argumentative also, thing yeah and also when he when you know in this online lectures and all that he often refers to different movies and different characters to kind of illustrate his points mm -hmm. and you know of course that doesn't mean that he thinks that uh, he doesn't mean that he bases his arguments in disney characters it just means that he has found something <laughs> that has proven that is a good metaphor himself to, to be a good it. metaphor okay. yeah exactly and to be able to describe it um but yeah i i get your point and i see why many people say that oh i'm an atheist i can't stand read this book because he always brings that's up God not that's not that. that's also not at all what i'm saying i mean religion has quite a lot of value and i agree with his point if he says that if those stories survived for two thousand years there must be some um fundamental truth to them somewhere exactly it's just then part of the scientific or the philosophical process to kind of reconstruct that proof from maybe the Bible or whatever he tries to <laughs> say there then. Yeah, All of right. course. But let's come maybe back to your main argument. So you said that he often leaves the ground of... of of science and he kind yeah. of switches over to philosophy and religion and all that and he kind of tries to make the argument based from a very traditional perspective let's say like uh, for, as a counter example what i consider as a, a very solid book um, maybe also for the listeners out there um thinking fast and slow by daniel kahneman because he's also been a psychologist <laughs> not a clinical psychologist i think but um what he's been writing about are like the um central human biases and fallacies and what we're part of and if you look at the back of his book he's been backing up like every major statement with scientific uh, proofs with his studies that he's been conducting over decades 
and also with humans like studies with humans and um, I, I consider this as a very very solid approach and in comparison to this chapter of Peterson which might be kind of nitpicky now because it's just one uh, chapter of the book <laughs> we are discussing right now I think it's less solid to <laughs> start out with yeah with the lobster thing and the religion thing and mixing all of that together then okay. taking a solid decades of research also with sources okay. and stuff but that's but of course did. like Morris he did take decades of solid research but just not on humans yeah <laughs> and I um, you could and argue about that which we did but I think if you if you are starting out from if you are trying to give humans advice uh, like advice to humans then maybe you should take them as a starting point but yes sure. as, I, as like descriptive metaphors and uh, means of making it more accessible I I am okay with lobsters <laughs> sure and you know I see the lobster example as more of a look there are animals there are other creatures who have similar kind of a similar mm -hmm. nervous system in certain aspects mm -hmm. who act a certain way and therefore look you can you can change your mental state by changing your physiology and we see that all the time you know people who are very skinny people um who work out and then become you know <laughs> have a body like the rock and suddenly <laughs> exactly and suddenly are extremely confident and of mm -hmm. course working out and improving your physiology is part of that and yeah i i get your arguments and i get your criticism but i think he he does provide scientific resources and he does provide every source in in the back of his book uh, of every claim he makes and also not exactly of every claim he makes because as i said he's always on that border between science and what is maybe not yet science philosophy which i don't see a problem in because he basically combines religion philosophy science and his personal anecdotes to make arguments i i don't really see a problem with that because um different to how Dane Kahneman in Thinking Fast and Slow arguments, of course, Thinking Fast and Slow is a very scientific, I, I've not read, but I know about it, mm -hmm. is a very scientific book. And uh, as you may agree, is very, well, you know, very well researched and pretty much. It's, uh, yeah, it's rather scientific. I mean, he's also involving personal anecdotes, but he's using sure, like his studies to base his arguments on. Yeah, and I don't think he, he probably doesn't use religion or philosophy or any of that to make his arguments. I'm pretty sure he doesn't. Or does he? That's, that's a good question. I I think not, no. He's not doing sure. that. Sure, so, yeah, but I think that book is also a book that more or less implicitly claims, look, I am a scientific book, it's well researched, here mm -hmm. are my sources, this is how your mind manipulates you, This is these are the fallacies um that you can fall into and all that but in <laughs> it's not actually that what he's stating but yeah go on okay sure um but in 12 rules for life i think it's something that's much more much more personal in some ways much more focused on on the mm -hmm. human on on a certain value system and when you're arguing or when you're making points to enforce a 
certain value system, I don't think you can yeah. just argue scientifically. scientifically because it's always like part of your paradigm or whatever the English word is for that. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, you can't you can't reasonably argue in a scientific matter. There, you can only make it like as a you, yeah. You should see that book then more of as a speech that is trying to make that value system attractive to you sure maybe. that and maybe one last point for my part <laughs> <laughs> i think an, an interesting way to think about this argument is he usually he's usually focused on on the science at the end of the day but mm -hmm. he starts maybe an argument with a scientific fact with a study or whatever um, but then goes on okay we have similar examples in religion we have similar examples in philosophy we have i have had similar experiences in my clin clin uh, clinical practice and all that okay i really don't see a problem with that i would see more i i would see a problem if you would only argue from religion or only from philosophy or only from science but combining mm -hmm. all of them and therefore creating your know, multiple perspectives and sort of proving that okay uh, what we have now proven scientifically, scientifically has already been more or less said 2,000 years ago or has already been discovered by philosophers like Nietzsche and all that. So, yeah, I, I don't see a problem with that. And I actually, uh, I actually enjoy it way more when it's more perspectives and more domains coming together and forming an argument. But sure. I okay, okay. Yes, that's uh, like a solid summary. I just want to add like one point to that. I think it's all, yeah, it's really um, beneficial to have multiple viewpoints mixed together. I just also see a danger there of like you or like the author becoming a bit too picky about what he's writing about then because he has like that many areas and sure there will be some example for your viewpoint in every area and you can stitch them kind of together. Sure. to create your point of view but i guess that's also kind of the core of writing yeah <laughs> all right i guess we want to end that discussion right now i was quite yes. happy with it to say so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because like, was... i already mentioned it on a previous episode yeah, i think we it, it's more you you as a listener or we as like the uh, talking people here we get more value out of a discussion if we like oppose each other a little more and really do what uh, actual discussion is and not like agreeing on every point. <laughs> sure. You know, being a little more provocative and <laughs> I think also a little bit more authentic because in mm -hmm. real life we, I, I, I don't think in real life you just agree on everything and yeah, I agree and that's fine and sure. Cool <laughs> idea. I think it's also for the listeners way more interesting to kind of just, you know, discuss have yeah. different positions and perspectives and all that yeah so and yeah, at the end of the day like there's more value to your point of view if you like as you mentioned before in your like discussion if you have like laid out all the arguments in front of you and then maybe choose according to your principles or whatever you established as valuable yes definitely yeah all, all right, right so as a like maybe short summary um yeah whenever it comes to self-help books they are a really helpful toolbox to get you <laughs> like progressing there in your life. And what you should also maybe oftentimes do is 
take a critical standpoint on them, like think where do they apply to your life, where they, do they don't apply to your life. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> also for Being Peterson's books, not only for Peterson's books, uh, yeah. for every book, I guess, out there. Yeah, definitely. And just being aware, you know, self-aware and knowing what your value system is, what you want to accomplish in life and knowing how to implement all those tools in your toolbox to, to get there. Yes. I think that's right. a good way to end it. <laughs> good way. Yes. It was a pleasure. <laughs> As always. As yes. always. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, guys. So if you enjoyed it, uh, leave a like, follow us, check out our blogs in the description and see you in the next episode. Thank you.